sorry, if we can start again. If um, Watch over him, and if doors open for him, let them expose larger horizons. Not in the sense of magnitude, because in some instances, small jobs are are what's offered and are the source of joy if we only had eyes to see it. So be with him. Help him in that way. Um, um, to find in his circumstances a opportunity to be strengthened in his faith, whatever's given to him, um, and let him grow in it. And um, I ask for a special peace, a quiet, a, a trust in you from Michael and um, Aaron's mom. Um, for those who are not present, we've been missing people. Um, watch over everybody, keep them safe. We're, um, it's a hard time in our history right now. Um, ask for a special blessing on Suzanne and I. I'm asking for everybody's prayers that um, to um, watch over us, to strengthen us, to help complete this work that we began with you years ago. Be with our own son Christopher in the new job that he started um, for all the efforts that he's making and wanting to be good, help him. Um, but most especially I'm asking for a blessing on the Mideast and all that's going on there. Um, you gave a, a large place for Ishmael. If it didn't have meaning before, it should after we've had Moby Dick. You called him a monster of a man that he would lead a nation and um, Pardon if I miss speaking here. I don't see an end to the conflict between Islam and Judaism. They're too linked um, together by a spirit of the law that you answered. We can't. Um, that always waits on a wound, an injustice, or um, help them to recover some sense, awareness of living together with differences. And meanwhile, um, let your justice, your divine justice, um, be realized. The um, savage, barbarous acts, um, let them be answered justly with the use of force in war without resorting to any kind of barbarism. Um, watch over um, all the people in that area surrounding it who have no direct say in what's going on and even at the periphery in outlying cities where particularly Hamas has a foothold. Um, be with people please. Um, you always are. We know this. Um, we offer our prayers in the spirit of sorrow that we carry and because of what's going on. Let your peace be with us in the work that we're doing here. Um, let everything we're doing strengthen our faith and make us more prepared um, to carry on the evangelical work you called us to, the missionary work, um, to bring you to the world, um, to make your kingdom real for people who don't see it the way we do. Make us bold, increase our humility, both. We offer these prayers in your name, 
Christ our Lord. Amen. I've got a couple of things here um, before we actually start with the poetry because I want to get I want to get directly to it. Um, this is on a personal note, but such things happen. Just before Susanna and I sat down to dinner tonight, we got a call from a friend who was a colleague at um, at um, college or. Uh, Magdalen College ages ago when I was there for a while. Wonderful man, one of the most sensitive men I've ever worked with, truly. Just a, a bright, if he goes online, he's not gonna be happy with me if this is being recorded. One of the most sensitive men I've ever known and one of the brightest, too sensitive in some ways, just bright, bright man. Um, he's come out of a period of being a recluse for a time and is teaching again. And it's ironic to me because he's, um, he's being asked to teach the high school where he's teaching, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And I'm just delighted because he's lived too much of his life in Dostoevsky in my mind. <laughs> I'm saying that truly. He's lived too much of his life in Dostoevsky and the thought of him reading Jane Austen and have to bring that bright mind of his um, to her work is just a joy to me. I told him as much. And anyway, talking with him on the phone and reliving the joy that I feel about her work, it brought me back to an existential problem here. <laughs> because you know, and I'm very serious about this, that I'm doing everything I can to shorten this work because um, as you know, <laughs> the evidence is all around us. Um, my age is showing and I'm losing it everywhere. And I don't want to inflict this on you and it's a real, it's, it, it takes a lot for me because I probably work at it too hard, but class preparations and stuff like that are, have never been easy for me. If there's a hard way to do something, I'll find it. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's been the way for me all my life. If you need evidence, ask my wife. And she will confirm that. <laughs> you did not need to say that, Suzanne. Um, Anyway, his talking about Pride and Prejudice, I have deliberately, deliberately not put her on this list because as much as I enjoy her, she doesn't deal with um, um, the divine um, or theological things. There's only one work, I think I've said this, Jay, I, I hope I get to heaven. One of the reasons I wanna go is I, I wanna thank her because I, I feel this strongly. She gave me my domestic eyes. And when I was well enough along in my reading, I could see the connection between her and Shakespeare and the Christian past. But she does not deal with evil very well, or deeply. And she doesn't deal with theological manners. It's just her world is a world of manners. But I don't know of anybody who deals with George Eliot, to me, is, doesn't at all. Most moderns would call George Eliot a realist and they probably have some criticism of Jane Austen. I don't, I, I love her. But I didn't put her on this list precisely because she doesn't deal directly with theological things. But here's what I said to our friend tonight, and it's made me, it's, it's brought me to this question that I'm gonna to put to you. If you read Jane Austen and you've come from Shakespeare's comedies, this is actually looking forward to my talk with you next week when we're gonna do, um, Billy Budd and I was going to do a sort of quick overview again. 
one of those um, water or what do you call it the on the sidewalk that feed the water the Hmm? Fire extinguishers? Yeah, one of those fire extinguishers moments when, when, when one, of, one of the first classes I gave, the, the guy who was the head of the um, catechesis class said, I came expecting a drink of water and I got a fire hydrant. <laughs> um, where's it going? Um, I didn't want to include her for the reason that I've given. Um, but I was saying to our friend tonight that one of the interesting things that you should see reading her is that if you if you go back to the Christian Middle Ages and not just the the uh, Corpus Christi plays you know those or if you go back to Chaucer we've done Chaucer you go from Chaucer and his treatment of marriage man and woman to Shakespeare in Shakespeare's comedies Marriage is the central defining action of his comedies. There is no comedy he's written, none, that isn't defined, the action isn't defined by marriage. Because the, the, the promise of happiness or joy in this life is fulfilling our love with another, to love and be loved. And I can't say that strongly enough. You know that a couple of weeks ago I stopped to, to offer a few thoughts on um, theology of the body. And I made the claim then that the defining image of Catholicism is marriage. It's God the Father calling his people back, offering his son, the bridegroom, um, to the bride, the church, to get us back. The defining image of our faith is a marriage. And one of the hardest things in the modern world, I would say, is marriage. Because we've lost a sense of that. So if you're reading Chaucer to Shakespeare, Shakespeare's comedies, and Jane Austen, you can't read a Jane Austen novel without finding, whether you're conscious of it or not, the whole action is defined in terms of a man and a woman, some struggle, and all, both of them, both of them having to come to terms with their pride and their blindness and going beyond. So every one of her novels ends in delight. And if you're reading them, you can't help but feel delight as you read through them. But there's nothing consciously sacred or theological. It's just domestic struggles. It's family. And I, I can remember being conscious of that, you know, looking back on my own past and thinking about the past of most people today. Who gives marriage that kind of importance? Hemingway? Melville? Dostoevsky touches on it. Hawthorne? No writer we read the rest of the way will give marriage that kind of focus. And it just struck me as I was saying to him, one of the things you're going to discover if you read more of Jane Austen is you can't read a novel of hers without dealing with marital difficulties and the possibilities of delight. After Jane Austen, gone. Gone. George Eliot, gone. Dickens, sentimentalized on the borders. Um, we'll get close to it in some of the other... I'm only saying this because it's another way of saying to you all, we have entered modernity. And, and I've said it a number of different ways when we started... Anyway, I said, we're in modernity. But here it came at me from another perspective. And my delight was so great. 
in thinking about what he's going to encounter having to let Dostoevsky go and you know enter Jane Austen's world because it's a world of manners and formalities and boundaries and principles there's nothing that she you, it's never conscious she's not a philosopher but you can't read her without feeling you're in the presence of a woman who took principles absolutely seriously which which meant you're in a ground of universals principles reason they define things the people who slip away from those mindsets lose it in some way so it's interesting to think to to correlate um, delight with its principles because there's a strong correlation who makes them today it's like delight is something you might stumble across everyone's she makes it clear that if you're doing this if you learn to see yourself if you put your pride away the possibilities of love open to you and it changes the nature of marriage. After her, gone. Just gone. So here's the question that I want to put out and I don't want to answer. Um, my question to you, and I'm going to write an email and I'm, going to, I'm asking every one of you to vote on it, to say yes or no. Do you want to do Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice or not? If we do Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, because it will be a delight, I mean, next to all the other works we're doing. <laughs> go, go, go. You're, already, you're already in trouble tonight. Um, <laughs> Wait, hold on. My question is, do we do Jane Austen? Because it is, Pride and Prejudice is just, it's one of the, it, it'll probably be the most delightful novel you ever read. But if we do it, there's no way I'm going to do it and not do Mansfield Park, because I think that's her most mature work. And there's a character in Mansfield Park, and the modern world has screwed her up. I couldn't believe the movie. I just, it's, it's just so stupid what the modern world is. Um, Mansfield Park has a character that's the close, a woman, a female character, that is the closest thing that she gets to. And I think she gets really close to Christ. So if we're going to do Jane, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, I don't want to do it and leave it alone because it'll, it'll mislead in a way that I don't want to happen in this class. Because I want you to see Jane Austen through my eyes. That, that when I did a program online a long time ago, they chose Emma, which said a lot about the people because Emma is the sort of uncle armchair. I don't want to go there. But to me, uh, Mansfield Park is the test case. If you read that, knowing that it's Jane Austen, you're seeing the same woman who wrote Pride and Prejudice, but you're seeing her go to spiritual depths that she doesn't touch in any of, of her other works. So I don't want an answer now, and I certainly don't want to hear anything about existential <laughs> <laughs> dilemmas. I, um, I say don't waste your time, just do it. They all want to do it. Does, is there... Yeah, we don't need to vote. <laughs> is that you? Yeah, so we are unanimous. Is that... I don't want. To, I didn't want to assume that. Are you guys okay with that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm talking to the wrong person. Now, now I'm going to find the darkest novel that I know of and present it to you guys. This, this, this is Father Flynn saying to, give me another football on Sunday. He's not going to hear. I'm going to find the darkest novel I can now and put it on a reading list. Okay, here, let's do it this way, because I want to get to the short story. So we're doing 
Melville's Billy Budd next week, we have Halloween off the following week. So we won't meet then. That gives everybody a break. And we'll do Jane Austen then, and we'll finish her up, and then go to the modern short story, most of, most of which are women writers, interestingly. It'll be interesting to see what Jane Austen does with her heroines and what the modern women do. Because the water, modern women are n not very flattering about women. They're really showing what's underneath the skin. <laughs> so first week back after Halloween, Pride and Prejudice, and wait one sec, we'll approach it the way I've done everything. We'll do you know, six, eight chapters at a chunk. So probably something like three weeks. I don't want to dwell on it. It's a good novel. Three weeks is plenty of time. And then we'll do Mansfield Park. It's a, it, it's n Jane Austen's words of, um, of, um, God, what's my kind of Pride and Prejudice? We're too light and bright. That was her own criticism of work. Too light and bright. Mansfield Park is not light and bright, but it's Jane Austen. I, she. You cannot read a line of hers without feeling her intelligence everywhere. Her intellect illuminates lines. She doesn't write a line that, that isn't luminous with perceptive. When she creates a scene, you see you're there. But it's, it's not light and bright, like Pride and Prejudice. So it'll be a little bit heavier, but we'll give three, three weeks to each. If we end up a little bit longer, we'll do that. And then we'll pick up the short stories. Okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, the movie, good. That gives you... So, since it's three weeks off, when we meet, you have a test. By the way, when I went online and just typed in Billy Bud, there is an audio book of it that's free and while you, there's not the entire movie there are a number of clips from the 1962 movie that are very good. Oh. I, I was going to go on, probably what I'm going to do and and I'll do it right away I'll probably go online and, and find a synopsis just a summary Wikipedia something I'll send it but what I'm going to do, in, so if you just read it, it'll be two or three pages. It's not going to ask a lot of you guys, but be sure you read it. Because if you don't, you'll miss a lot. I'm going to pick out a couple of chapters that night when we meet, just to read from a few chapters and then go to the end and read a little bit more and then ask some questions, which to me are hard questions. People divide down on them, but, but that's as much as a, that I'd like to do with Billy Budd. And then, so that's nice. So we have um, Halloween and then movie night, um, Top Gun. <laughs> and, God, I can't, I can't, something must be wrong with me. Something is really going wrong with me. So you're joining forces? Are you here? Is that what you're saying, Bob? <laughs> that that term is 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 been what's the the iron thing that you you know that you put on animals the the branding iron that term 
yeah, that term, pushback, is forever burned into my skull. <laughs> the, the forces are forces are joining, growing. Come on, let's start. Let's start. Frost, Robert Frost. Before we start, and I, I'm saying this with some pride and joy, actually. The lyric, you know, has been a sort of backseat thing in our life together. I've given you two things tonight. One of them is a copy of Bird Poems, because I've spoken to you about Bird Poems, and I think probably you think I'm losing it altogether. Um, but I gave you a sheet that, here, listen to me. Pay, I want your attention just for 30 seconds. That sheet breaks down a large number of lyrics by categories of theme. The first one will be bird poems, so you'll see that I'm not out of my mind. But I'm, I'm glad to do that because some of you have asked for additional reading, you know, when we, when we finally bite the bullet and accept our existential fate. <laughs> um, you've got a list of lyrics, and I'm really glad to turn them over to you because, you know, when we stop, if you want to go back to lyrics every once in a while, you can Google these. I'm sure, I'm, my assumption is every one of them will be online. So every once in a while you can, on your own, pick up this sheet and find a theme that you want to look at, because the major themes are there, and read a lyric. You know it's going to be short, most of them, but it'll take you back to our lyric experiences. So including in the reading that you have ahead of you for, you know, in that long list, I get, you've now got lyrics, okay? Hmm? These poems are all frosts? No, they're everybody. Oh. In the collection of poems, you'll see that, that are by theme. Mm -hmm. It's a whole variety of poets. It's, 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 a, it's a brief sketch of the lyric tradition. It's a whole tradition. I mean, obviously, there are thousands, thousands of poems. You know, there's no way to, no way to do justice to that tradition. But this at least gives you major poems that you could read if if you want to just every once in a while pick up a lyric, okay? What is it, the page numbers? Um, oh, these come from yeah, I think, God, I'm sorry. I think it's from, um, no, no, it's a, it's one of those, um, God, I can't even think of, it's one of those major. Like an anthology of poetry? It's a major, say, the, could you, you name yeah, and I can, Norton, I can't remember what the anthology, it's a major, I, it's not Oxford, maybe, nor, I can't remember, but it's a large, oh, huh? or, I, can't, I can't say always, 50 years ago was what we used to do. Yeah, the pages won't mean much to you, but I took them from my edition, I think it's, um, an word. I, actually, I'll write it down, I'll send you, I'll, I'll give that, it's, and, and, and if it even, I'm sure it's current because it stays current. So it's the current edition will have poems not included and the page numbers will be different. But I will send that citation so you have it. Okay. The poem of Frost that I want to read tonight I think is one of the most beautiful poems of the 20th century. And I hope you know me well enough that I wouldn't say that lightly. I think this is Frost among his greatest poems and there's a good handful of them. This, I think, is his greatest. He came to this towards the end of his life. Um, this is as close to the apophatic 
as we can get. Remember the apophatic T.S. Eliot, where you are is where you are not. Um, where you begin is where you end. Remember when we've talked, I've gone over those lines in the burnt, or in the four quartets. This is as close and as complete a rendering of the apophatic that I know. And this is Frost. So this is a depth of vision. He's an extraordinary poet on his own rights. His poetry is among the best poetry in the modern world. We've read some, you've read one that has to do with suicide or contemplating letting it go. Um, I think this is his greatest poem. So, yes. Sorry, Doc. Directive. It's in that selection of poems, okay? It's the um, fourth page in, in that selection. It's, it's, it's half a dozen poems of Frost. Directive. Back out of all this time, sorry, back out of all this now too much for us. Back in a time made simple by the loss of detail, burned, dissolved, and broken off, like graveyard marble sculpture in the weather. There is a house that is no more a house, upon a farm that is no more a farm, and in a town that is no more a town. The road there, if you let a guide direct you, who only has at heart your getting lost, may seem as if it should have been a quarry. Great monolithic knees, the former town long since gave up pretense of keeping covered. And there's a story in a book about it. Beside the wear of iron wagon wheels, the ledges show lines ruled southeast, northwest. The chisel work of an enormous glacier that braced his feet against the Arctic pole. You must not mind a certain coolness from him, still said, to haunt this side of Panther Mountain. Nor need you mind the serial ordeal of being watched from 40 cellar holes, as if by an eye pairs out of 40 firkins. As for the woods, excitement over you that sends light rustle rushes to their lees, charge that to upstart inexperience. Where were they all not 20 years ago? They think too much of having shaded out a few old pecker-fretted apple trees. Make yourself up a cheering song of how someone's rode home from work this once was, who may be just ahead of you on foot or creaking with a buggy load of grain. The height of the adventure is the height of country where two village cultures faded into each other. Both of them are lost. And if you're lost enough to find yourself by now, pull in your ladder road behind you and put a sign up closed to all but me and make yourself at home. The only field now left's no bigger than a harness gall. First there's the children's house of make-believe, some shattered dishes underneath a pine, the playful things in the playhouse of the children. Weep for what little things could make them glad. Then for the house that is no more a house, but only a, a bilict cellar hole, now slowly closing like a dent in dough. This was no playhouse, but a house in earnest. Your destination and your destinies a brook that was the water of the house, cold as a spring, as yet so near its source, too lofty and original to rage. 
We know the valley streams that when aroused will leave their tatters hung on barb and thorn. I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside, a broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it, so can't get saved. As St. Mark says, they mustn't. I stole a goblet from the children's playhouse. Here are your waters and your watering place. Drink and be whole again beyond confusion. Christ. When you think about this poem, read it at night. I mean, meditate on it. It's a, it's a wonderfully complex deep. At the center of it, I hope you'll see, is a goblet. Um, there are allusions to Christian. He, he, there's nothing explicit. The goblet is there, the playhouse, the stream. The drink whole beyond confusion is Frost's um, testimony to poetry that the very best poetry can take us close to Christ. We've seen that in, in so many of our poets, Hopkins and Schnackenberg, some others. Not with Frost. But this is as deep, I think, he gets into Christian mysteries as any poem he ever wrote. When you read it, keep in mind the apophatic. A house that is no more a house, a farm that is no more a house, a road that is no longer there. At the center of this poem is one of the deepest truths that we found in Shakespeare's King Lear. We will, and it, it's at the center of Old Man and the Sea. We will never be who we were meant to be until at some point in our lives we get lost. Do we realize we don't know who we are and we go through this struggle. It can be a painful struggle, but in that struggle, we, it's like passing through the apophatic on our way to Christ, that he's at the other side of that darkness. Um, I want to get to an old man here, but any questions or thoughts about this? I can read it again if you think it'll help. I can leave it. Do you want to leave it here, Anne? Do you want to read again? You want me to read it again? Directive, Robert Faust. Rereadings are always good. We, ne we never see things the first time. We never, none of us. Or for me, 10th, 20th, I have a slow mind, so it usually takes me longer. Back out of all this now, too much for us, back in a time made simple by the loss of detail, burned, dissolved, and broken off. Like graveyard marble sculpture in the weather, there is a house that is no more a house upon a farm that is no more a farm. Here, I'm going to stop. I don't like doing this, but when we go back in our memories in the past, and I've had a vivid experience, I remember going back in Washington to a house that I've um, I was at with my aunt and uncle when I had to stay with them for a while. And I went back because I had such fond memories of that house. You know, this is in Washington. I went back. I turned the corner with such expectation. Such expectation. It was a big house with a long sweeping yard that probably was 50 yards long. And it was not my family. It was my aunt. So it was not. But it was a time of joy. And 
I went back just to see it. Turned the corner, walked down the street, and there was a, a parking lot to an apartment complex. It, wait, and by the way, when we do Faulkner's The Mansion, which I, I really want to get, Mink Snopes is going to have that experience coming out of prison after 50 years. He's going to go out and he's going to remember that unaxed. Uh, hold on. Hold on. You stop it. There's this wonderful phrase where he comes out of prison and he, he remembers this unaxed tree. Because in memory, it's still the way it was. But you know that so often we go back in memory, the house that was there is no longer there. Whatever it was that we held onto is not there. And we have to go on. But that apophatic space, you know, when, I've asked you this, when we leave communion and we've received the Eucharist, where are we? And you know how serious I've asked, I haven't asked it in a long time. We've got Christ in us, we're in his kingdom. We're walking out to the parking lot, so we're looking at a car, we're watching people trying to get out ahead of each other, honking horns. These are Christians wanting to get out. We've just received the Eucharist. Where are we? Where are we? What's, how do you describe that space? So when Frost is talking about this house that is no longer, he's taking us back to a place in poetry, where poetry is taking us to a space that's real, but that's in the poem. So it takes us to what we think of as being real, but something that doesn't share in that reality. It's like another world exists, coexisting with the one that already exists. That's what poetry does. Is everybody clear? It's when we're in a poem, it's like we're aware that there's another reality next to us, and the poem takes us into it. it feels so real. Um, so just hold that in mind, okay? Like a graveyard marble sculpture in the weather, there is a house that is no more a house upon a farm that is no more a farm, and in a town that is no more a town. The road there, if you'll let a guide direct you, who only has at heart, you're getting lost. He doesn't want us to find ourselves in this world. He's trying to take us to another place. Who only has at heart, you're getting lost, may seem as if it should have been a quarry, great monolithic knees. The former town long since gave up pretense of keeping covered. And there's a story in a book about it, Besides the wear of iron wagon wheels, the ledges show lines ruled southeast, northwest, the chisel work of an enormous glacier that braced his feet against the Arctic pole. You must not mind a certain coolness from him, still said to haunt this side of Panther Mountain, nor need you mind the serial ordeal of being watched from 40 cellar holes as if by eye pairs out of 40 firkins. As for the woods' excitement over you, that sends light rustle rushes to their leaves, charge that to upstart inexperience. Where were they all not 20 years ago? They think too much of having shaded out a few old pecker fretted apple trees. Make yourself up a cheering song of how someone's road home from work this once was, who may be just ahead of you on foot or creaking with a buggy load of grain. The height of the adventure is the height of country where two village cultures faded into each other. Think of conservative liberal <laughs> fighting. Both of them are lost. 
And if you're lost enough to find yourself by now, pull in your ladder road behind you and put a sign up closed to all but me. Then make yourself at home. The only field now left no bigger than a harness gall. First there's the children's house of make-believe, some shattered dishes underneath a pine, the playthings in the playhouse of the children. Weep for what little things could make them glad. Then for the house that is no more a house, but only a, um, a, bi-laced, a bi-laced cellar hole, bi-laced cellar hole, now slowly closing like a den in dough. This was no playhouse, but a house in earnest. Your destination and your destinies, a brook that was the water, that was the water of the house, cold as a spring, as yet so near its source, too lofty and original to rage. We know the valley streams that when aroused will leave their tatters hung on barb and thorn. I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside, a broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell so the wrong ones can't find it, so can't get saved, as St. Mark says they mustn't. I stole the goblet from the children's playhouse. Here are your waters and your watering place. Drink and be whole again beyond confusion. God. It's one of the most stunning poems of the 20th century, I think. Okay. Old Man of the Sea. This is not Pride and Prejudice. Um, by the way, I want to just say to all of you again, um, and I'm saying this really sincerely, um, thank you all for the birthday offerings a couple weeks ago when I was trying to do everything I could to forget my age and you guys are all reminding me. <laughs> you were all kind and thoughtful and I really, really appreciated your kindness, so thanks for that. Okay, very, very quickly, a, re- a review. Um, and then what I want to do is I'm going to go through um, the text fairly closely, just picking out some important lines, and then I've got major questions to ask you guys. Um, one of the major questions, and there's a corollary to it that I'm not going to ask until the end, but the, but the major question is, what does far out mean? Clearly it means geographically in literal miles. You know that he heads out the Gulf Stream into the Atlantic, east. He starts north and then goes northeast. So he's going out to the sea. Helicopters were sent, so were boats. He was so far out they couldn't find him. So by far out, San Diego just means, you know, I was in mileage, I don't know, a long ways away. But metaphorically, in terms of the story, What does that mean? He goes far out when he catches the marlin. Right right away, before he leaves, before he even leaves, he's saying, I'm going too far out. So he knows in advance he's going to do that. I'll read that. He goes out. Once he catches the marlin, the marlin takes him out farther. But all along he's saying, too far out. He knows from the beginning. And um, even during the period where he struck battling the fish to get him under control, 
He's saying too far out, too far out. When the shark attack takes place, he says to the fish, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my fault, I did this. And he acknowledges that he went too far um, and regrets it. Um, so he has this um, almost tearful, overwhelming battle with the marlin when he's trying to bring him in. His hands get raw, one of his hands cramps up, he can't use it. He calls, he calls his hand, when his hand cooperates, he calls him his brother. When it doesn't cooperate, he calls it its enemy. <laughs> he's so dissociated in his body, he gets really angry at his body for not keeping up. Another instance of going far out, that he's exceeding his physical limits. Um, so the major question I have for everybody is, how do we understand that? What does it mean to exceed our limits? What do we learn? Because I'm going to, at the end, I'm going to encourage all of you to get personal for a moment, if you don't mind. I'm going to say, what does this mean? Because I'm assuming every one of us in this room has had it. I may be wrong, but I'm assuming every one of us has had a moment. In that moment, a kind of self-knowledge is given to us. We learn something about ourselves that we wouldn't if we had not done it, even if we regret it. So my question is, what is, Hem what is Hemingway showing us here? What does that mean? So just keep that on your mind, okay, as we read. That'll, that's going to be one of the major questions for me. So some of the major themes, we've already talked about them. Um, the village community... Santiago says later in the book, if you read my notes, you'll find all the, all the, the, the page numbers go to them, in, at least my edition. So you've got quotes and page numbers. So if you ever want to go back to them, you can refer to my notes because they should be really helpful. Santiago himself says it's a really good village. They were helpful before he left. Um, they were helpful when he came back. The parents of the boy have a few good things to say to Santiago, he's gone 85 days without a fish. And I'm assuming there are people in the village who say the same thing, stupid guy, he's cursed. It's like looking at the lepers in the Old Testament. They don't, he's cursed, they don't associate with him. It's like a, you know, they have that superstitious sense, really. That's a sense they carry. They don't want to have anything to do with him. But the village generally is a good village. The people are good and he knows that. There's a part of that village filled with progressive men who are modern, who go out to fish in order to get fish oil to sell to companies to get profits so they can buy motorized boats. So they belong outside of that defining community where man encounters nature on its own. It's not a motor, there's no technology. We're gonna, by the way, we're gonna encounter this in, um, in Faulkner's Go Down Moses. It's gonna be partly the answer to this. Go down, Moses. It's a boy encountering nature without technology. What did Ahab want? He, he wanted all that technology that gave him more power, and when it didn't give him the power he wanted, he threw it away. But that was in an effort to get complete control over nature. Santiago repeatedly refers to nature as feminine and the, the creatures in it as his brother. He doesn't have those words to say about the sharks because they're vicious, but he speaks of the marlin and his brother, even though he's going to kill him. And the third community, so the first is the village community, the second are these, this small group of progressives. The third community is the tourists at the end. 
You remember the book ends when he has gone home, he's exhausted, he's on the bed in a Christ-like figure, he's lying out, his hands are flat out, his palms open, very much like Christ. And um, the boy comes to him and breaks into tears. When he sees the condition of the old man as he can't stop crying, he repeatedly breaks into tears. Um, when he goes to the town and has to ask for food, he controls himself and then breaks into tears again. The very end, it shows a tourist, a woman, looking at the size of the skeleton and says, what is that? And because of a misunderstanding in language, because of the word the man uses to describe it to her, he uses what seems to be shark. She thinks of it as a shark, shark skeleton. And her comment was, I didn't, something like, we'll look at it, I didn't think sharks, skeletons could be so beautiful, or, and the husband says, I didn't either, which shows they have no idea none at all of the work of it. And let me try to put this in for a second. It's like people who've grown up with wealth who have no idea what goes on inside of a factory line. Or pe people are on a factory belt all day long, you know, sweating their lives away while comfortable people live in the comfort of their homes and have no sense of the suffering of their people. So Hemingway is giving a sense of another community that has no sense of the suffering involved in something as simple as fishing. That's why I went to a factory community. Find it, a plumber, a handyman, whatever. Find the simplest occupation you can. And then look at your attitude towards the stereotype. What Hemingway gives us in that couple at the end is a complete lack of awareness of the suffering that goes on in lots of places in our lives that we're simply not aware of. So one of the major themes is this difference between the communities and the sea. Remember the sea is a place of trial. It's always been in our literature. It's, it's metaphorically that space, if we can call it that, where we meet the indefinite. We don't have control over things. We want to control things. We find we can't. The more we try to control, the worse things get. The sea is an expression of that place where we find we don't have that kind of control, and it's there where we learn something about ourselves. And he describes it as feminine. Um, uh, remember when the boy and Santiago caught the two pa the pair of mandolin, when they and the the female was the one that always approached the male, let the female. It's really interesting how how. <laughs> much that follows through in life. You know, the, the male lion, who's the king of the beast, sits on a hill by the female. And I think I can remember, I can remember telling you guys after we did Chaucer, because it was stunning to me. I'd, we'd never done, I'd never done Chaucer and then Shakespeare. But the effect of reading Chaucer and Shakespeare left me with this unforgettable Men are scoundrels. <laughs> Men are scoundrels next to women. I mean, you know, when, when you think about the sort of suffering that women have to go through because of men and... Um, there's something like that. Don't even, you women, don't even do this right now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there, the difference between the land and the sea and even masculine and feminine come into play here in really clear ways. Um, a major theme. Um, at the center of Santiago's ordeal, are these meditations on the meaning of life. He meditates on sin, 
he meditates on the fact that the, the birds eat the fish and the fish eat that everything about the world is predatory. It's a Darwinian universe. And he even says that animals in some way, and by the way, I want to give this all the credit I can. Animals are some way nobler than human beings. And I'm, I'm going to support Hemingway here. If you think about how instinctive a bird is in flighting from a ban one branch to another, or a way an animal can go from one thing to another, human, the, the closest thing that we've had to that kind of experience is Queequeg, when that you know, boy got jumped, knocked over, and Queequeg immediately went. That was an animal-like behavior. Nobody else did that. That was an indication of the, the savage in him. We have intellects. We, we've lost something of the ability that we had in Eden to be instinctively responsive. And animals have it. So an ant can jump 50 times its height. We cannot. There's a quality to animals that's instinctive that we lack. But we also have the one thing animals don't have which is an intellect and a capacity to feel in emotional life. But Hemingway's making clear that contrast that in some ways these animals seem to be nobler than men. Okay. The lions. Last time I asked, I, I just want to put this note on it. Um, it's subtle, but it's recurrent. I mean, Santiago calls to mind the lions. I want to put a stamp on this because I want to get on. He has dreams about the lions often. At one point, he, he's dreaming about other things and deliberately not dreaming about the lions, and then they come into play again. And he dreams of them on, appearing on the beach, their numbers growing, and it says he's happy. The lions are playful. This man has committed his life to killing animals. That's Santiago's life. He fishes. He goes out to kill. He, he admits that, he says. But he has a dream of playful lions. I think that's an expression of his longing for peace. So at the center of Santiago's... And now, remember, Hemingway doesn't say this. We either infer it or... But I'm offering this as my best wisdom on this because it's a recurrent image. We're meant not to ignore it. I think it takes the form it does because it's... it's it's an expression of Santiago's longing for peace. At the center of this soul, this warrior, this fighter, this fisherman who's in combat, doing battle all the time, longs for peace. Okay. Um, the theme of mentoring that he's teaching um, Manolin and Manolin's learning from him. When he comes back, Manolin is reduced to tears. He does everything he can. He goes to get coffee. He tells the old man to go to sleep. And he doesn't know, we do. At the end of that fight, remember, we had that expression where Manolin, or Santiago said, he felt a taste of something in his lungs. I think he's wounded. I think it's blood. And I think we're meant to think he'll die. So nothing's made of it. But I think it, it reinforces the sense at the end that Manolin will carry on. That he will, and, and insofar, and you know I've pressed this, insofar as this is about poetry, it's the skill of an art that this young boy will carry that art on. That we're seeing all the qualities, the heroism, the learning, the sensibility in his heart, all that he feels, he's crying. Um, The fishing, remember, is a calling. It's what he was made for. 
There are a couple allegorical levels of meaning to the meaning. Remember the literal is Santiago goes out on a boat, he catches the fish and comes back. Um, at one level, it seems to me, repeatedly, we're encouraged to see a parallel between Santiago and Christ. Um, it, it, it comes explicitly a number of times during the battle. Remember, there's one time when sharks come and he goes, I, it's like a sharp, he, he realizes he's going to be, nothing happens to him. It's just he knows what's coming. He goes, I, and he describes that sound as exactly what happens when the nails pierce a hand and go into the wood. So that's the, one of the most explicit allusions to Christ, knowing painfully experiencing what is about to happen. Um, so we have those moments, you know, where you know something's coming and you know you can't escape it, and the pain is sharp, and there's no way to escape it. It, it will come. That's one of the allegorical meanings, the shark attack, and I mean this very, very seriously. Um, the shark attack is simply a shark attack. It keeps coming in um, waves. You know, first one, and a certain kind of shark, and then others, and then finally a pack that finish the fish off. Re recall to mind, Hemingway could not have not known this, recall to mind the shark attack in Melville. We went over this. Remember when the whale was half submerged below the level of the sea? And the sharks came in, and remember the cook was cooking, and he kept saying, damn those sharks. Um, and I think it was, um, what's his name? The one of the, not the first mate, but what? Your bike is down there by your leg. Um, what's the third mate's name? Not my mind. One of the mates was at dinner and wanted to eat his meal comfortably, and the sharks were going on and said, shut those damn sharks up. And the, and the cook was going, shut, shut his, you know. We're, we're, I think we're meant to see that that's an image of the society that they just left because the Pequot has gone off to kill people using lamp for themselves. So there's an irony that they're, they're being predators to kill these things in order to feed themselves or sell to make a profit on this one. So in the, and remember in Melville, when the sharks attacked the whale, they turned around and ate their own excrement and their own entrails. They, they ended up eating themselves, turning on themselves. And I suggested then that Melville intended that to be a metaphor for a capitalistic world. That it, it goes out looking for itself, but it ends up using other people and actually ends up feeding on itself whether it recognizes it or not. Oh wow, holy cow, getting worse. How long has this been off? Thanks. Thanks. Is this on? Thanks. I don't know about that. Yeah. Is everybody following? So that we have an, an allegorical image of a predatory society, a society in which each person looks out for himself, but ends up using other people and indirectly, without knowing it, feeding on himself. Um, and finally, the, the, the subtlest allegorical meaning to me is marriage. And I know this is probably going to seem a little bit outland, outlandish, but let me... You remember that during the story, Santiago actually t describes his relationship with the Marlin as a marriage. He says, we are wedded. He feels himself wedded, even though he's going to kill that Marlin. Santiago repeatedly over the journey says, I miss the boy. I wish you were here. 
So in going far out, he's put himself beyond people. He's not with somebody. He's meeting himself. He's engaging himself alone. Madeline's not there. When he comes home, Madeline comes and he, when he sees how beaten he is, he cries and goes out to get some coffee and comes back. And the two talk, and, and San Diego says to Madeline, I missed you. I missed you. I'm not sure that we would have ever heard that before in the beginning. I offer that. We'll talk about what the going out means. But, but he's learned enough of that voyage, the voyage to say to the young boy, I missed you. Because repeatedly he kept saying, I wish you were here. I wish you were here. So a marriage, an implied other. So however much the book shows an individual isolated, modern man, without God, isolated, on his own, dealing with a predatory world. I want to underline that. Insofar as the, mod, the image of the modern man is the autonomous individual, isolated autonomous individual, that's what one of our colleagues used to say, isolated autonomous individual. Each one of us in the freedom that we have, wanting our own freedom, bothered when people take it away, whining, complaining. Um, however much the modern world presents man as isolated autonomous individual, what, and however much Hemingway shows this, what he makes clear through the whole thing is we were meant to be together. Repeatedly he says, I wish the boy were here. I wish the boy were here. And when he gets home, he says, I missed you. I missed you. So the image ultimately that we get with Hemingway is, however predatory man seems to be in a Dar Darwinian world, man was meant to love and be loved. To love and be loved. Somebody's got a phone on, is it? Okay, I'm going to go through. I'm going to go through. I'm going to go through the text very quickly. Let me stop before we're going to go to the text right now. I want you to say that to everybody. Um, any questions or comments? Bob, you got a comment. No, Come on. I, yeah. I mean, I can read the book and I understand the book to, as the book. But how do you go from the book to well beyond? I mean, and maybe it's just your history because you always read and always that. Uh, but to me, it's amazing how you can take a book and read it. And I can read it too and I can tell a story about the book. But you go well beyond it. And I'm, I'm just wondering what makes you dive so deep into the book. Oh, Bob, that's how, a. How do you even get started doing that? I, I don't. I'm, if, if I were to, I mean, I feel a little embarrassed making this comparison. Um, when Santiago describes himself going out, yeah. it seems to me he discovers a depth of meaning in life that he didn't have before. First time I read literature, I've told you this, I, I, um, I, I, fl I flunked out of college. Reading was not a part of I didn't read when I was a kid. I played basketball. Um, I flunked out of college. I flunked bonehead English twice. You know that. I ended up teaching English. You know I've told you I flunked bonehead English. When I went to my freshman year, I played basketball. Basketball saved me. I didn't pass the English test, so I was required to take bonehead English. I took it, failed it, took it again, failed it. 
I was a science major. My mom thought I'd be a, I, ha, I mean, I was lost, genuinely lost. I was a science major. I shouldn't have been taking chemistry and zoology and biology. Those were, anyway, I flunked out of school and, and went to work. Um, I worked at, on the railroad, a waiter. I mean, I worked a whole variety of jobs, just, you know, leaving home and trying to get out on my own. Went back to school, and I remember the a turning point. It was a mile, and JC in a, in a required English class, I read Joseph Conrad's um, Victory, which to me is not a great novel, just not. But I was stunned, absolutely stunned, that a writer could do that with words, because that was not a part of my experience. High school was a waste. And then I majored in English, and I've told you, the two, the two books that set me on this course were um, Dickens' Great Expectations, and I'm seriously thought about doing it because <laughs> Dickens, but I, I did, it's all, I've been trying to shorten it. Um, Great Expectations and Pride and Prejudice. And I read those two books and just was taken. That what the, I didn't know people could do that with language. And I just sort of fell in love and majored in English, and it grew. And the more you, you know, the more you work at something, the, the first time I read the Iliad, because I, I, I graduated from Berkeley, which was one of the, supposed to be one of the best schools, English departments in the country. I didn't have outstanding grades. I'd be plus average. I mean, I was a decent student, but, um, but I knew um, that because in, in the universities, because you're an English major, literature only starts with Beowulf in English, and you go forward. And I'd heard about the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid and these great works. First time I picked up the Iliad, I could make, I mean, I'm not kidding, I've told you when we did it together. I could make no sense of that. None. I'm being as honest as I can, I've told you. Um, could make no sense of it. And, and, but as a teacher, when I began to teach and I had to read and was forced to read seriously, and in teaching it year by year, the meaning of those books just grew. What, what for me was chaos in the Iliad, I mean, just utter confusion, clarified it and made what Homer was doing. Truly, just stunning. It, he's one of the greatest poets ever, ever to have lived. Ever. How long it took me to see that, I don't know. But, you know, when you live your life doing something, and literature has been... And my love of philosophy took me there, so I read philosophy a lot, a lot. Thomas, St. Thomas, was um, on my bedside because the first time I read St. Thomas, it was his proof of the existence of God, that anybody could make an argument like that, that, that proved the existence of God, stunned me. Go, to, go online and look at Thomas's five proofs on the existence of God. If you've never read them, they'll blow you away. What he shows you is what reason can do. Reason in the scientific empiricist mind is reduced horribly. It's a skeleton of itself. Read Thomas and you'll see what an extraordinary thing reason was. So all the while that I was, you know, reading literature, I was reading philosophy and my understanding deepened over time. Um, so I think at this point in my life, I'm probably a little bit less foolish than I was when I started. Um, but I hope, I hope you all know, I wouldn't, because I take this very seriously, I have nothing, nothing good to say about feminists, Marxists, Freudians, in what they do with literature, because they turn literature into something it's not. I take this so seriously, 
I hope you know that I, I have not offered you anything that I didn't think was borne out by the text or I wouldn't offer. Or if I did, I'd say something to qualify it. Because I, I feel myself absolutely bound. That's why occasionally I feel like I'm pushing boundaries if I'm going into a catechetical because I've, I've got to do everything I can to hold myself to what's there, not let myself get out of it. And if, if anybody has a pushback in that, I'll be glad to be glad. I'm always, and I've told you this before and I meant it absolutely seriously. The greatest learning in my experiences, I've got, I understand things. I bring it to class. I present it. The greatest learning in my life as a teacher has come from exchanges with students. I would ask what is an obvious question. I had an obvious answer. And the fact that it wasn't obvious to a student and they had something to say and it required a response from me drew out of me something that I didn't know was there. The greatest learning for me as a teacher has, been, has taken place in a classroom <coughs> or reading critics who are giving me different views of something that I, that I didn't have. That exchange has so deepened you know, my understanding of text and my love of them that there's this extraordinary wisdom in literature. I wouldn't be doing this. Certainly shows, and I appreciate it, but it's just I pre my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I and I've said this to you, and I don't I don't think you feel it as deeply as I wish you. You have no idea how much I appreciate you, and the rest of you. Some of you with some difficulties. I hope you guys all know that I wouldn't say I wouldn't say anything unless I loved you dearly and hope that you knew that. God, I hope you all know that. Um, let's go. Any any comments on on the, my opening comments? Because what I want to do now is just go through the text. Any, Mary? Did you have something? Come on, I can. It's all over you. Let that. You're doing everything you can to hold it back. Let it go. Say it again. God said what? You know, he gave the animals. We were to rule over the animals right. and the plants. And right. So that's what I saw he was doing. Not that he was killing. Mm -hmm. He was subduing. He was doing what he was supposed yeah. to do. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Yeah, dominion. That was the word I was thinking. Yeah. Have yeah. dominion over the animals. What do you do with Mary? I'm curious because... Because it was a, I mean, there's such a large grayer. What do you do with those passages where Santiago says the animals are better than we are, they're nobler than we are? Well, I do agree with that. And Fit that I, in with what you just said. Well, the reason is animals do what they're supposed to do, what God has ordained them to do. Man is always bucking God. Yeah. <laughs> we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah. A lot of times we don't do what yeah, we yeah. do. We have to be tamed. Yeah. Tamed? Tamed, I guess. See, in the other book that I've thought about giving you guys, despite all that the feminists would do, is um, Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. But <laughs> I've been doing everything I can to shorten this. So the longer I'm here, I, got to, I need to get out of here. <laughs> oh, by the way, I wanted to say, you know that I've sent out email. I'm going to send out a few more. We're trying to put some groups together to get a meal. So just know that they're coming, and, and I will get back to you. It's, 
it takes time. But I, 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 you know, we started this months ago, months, and, and we've not, lots has happened. But I, I want to make sure we all have an evening together, eating together. Um, so just know that it's coming. Come on, let's go back to the text. I just want to say something yeah. about animals being nobler. Yeah. Because years ago I read that this man was talking to somebody who was an atheist. He was God and the man's dog, the man who was an atheist, his dog did something. He called the dog, and the dog came right there and did exactly what it was supposed to do. Right. And the man who was a Christian said to him, "That dog's smarter than you are." And the man felt disgusted, like, "How can you say that?" And so this conversation went on, and the man finally said to the atheist, "The dog is smarter than you are because he knew his master and went to it." Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's so true. It's so good. You know, there's, it's interesting too, really interesting, because I've thought about this same issue a lot. Um, when you look at a wild horse, a wild horse is a beautiful creature. Or even, I'm thinking about the movie where the dog movie, where at the end they release the dog back into nature. And I can remember my, asking my grandchildren where, what they thought of that, because I had real reservations about their doing that for the reason you're saying. When you watch a wild horse, you're watching somebody really, something really noble, wild. But watch a horse that's been trained, that's being ridden by a soldier, going into battle. It takes on a different kind of nobility. All that power. It, it, get a horse in a fire. A horse will go wild. He'll lose his head. But get a horse that's been trained with all that power, who can do something and put him in a fire, you're going to see a, no, a level of nobility that you won't see because when a human being imparts reason to an animal, the, the animal takes on something human, a nobility. So a, a wild dog, tame that dog and make him a good dog so the best in him comes out because a good master, something of that reason gets infused in an animal. But I just hate this. I, I, can't, I don't want to get started on it. What humans do with animals today sickens me. They either abuse them or ignore them. But how many animal owners take the time to train an animal, to, to help it be a good animal in the home? Anyway, come on, let's start. Okay, go ahead. I want to agree with Mary a little bit. The Hemingway novel. Um, you see Darwinian um, references. But for me, this was so, so different from Melville and Moby Dick, where they were really out to kill the whale. Um, I mean, Ishmael saw some nobility in the whales, but that those were revelations to him that went, as time went on. From the beginning, this man, to me, I mean, I think, from what the text said, he's living in harmony with nature that he knows so well. He calls them all brothers. I mean, mm -hmm. he loves the turtles. The two marlins that, you know, the male and female, where the female was caught and the male was faithful and stayed. And all the stories and all the things he shares, the sea is a woman. Like, everything is personal to him. And he meets them as an equal. Like, yes, we're contending with each, each other, but I respect you. And we'll see who wins. Yeah. And he's willing to like give his all 
to me, it was not Darwinian, and I did not see him as a killer or a warrior. He was not exploiting nature. He was just doing, he was becoming one with it, just what nature does to its, you know, predator and prey, but living in harmony with it, with a real, I, I, I really felt that he had a real respect and love of nature. I agree with all of that. I, if I would differ anywhere, it's just subtle, but my, I hope I've not misrepresented that. The backdrop of the world that he's grown up with is Darwinian. That's his backdrop. So he presents that. It's, I don't think you can come out of it and not feel that there's a predatory aspect. Fish don't care if they kill each other. He's a human, so he does. Um, so it's a Darwinian backdrop. It's a Darwinian world, but I think I completely agree with you. Everything you say about Santa brings that. The one, the one area where I'd, where I'd differ a little bit or qualify it is um, in whatever you said about not away, he is a, a battler and he even uses the word. He's in battle with the way, and he even says, You kill me, you know, or, or kill me, or I'm going to kill you now. I'm going to read those passages because even if he's at peace, and he is, he looks at them with the respect that you're calling, he also knows there's a battle there. So he's trying to bring every, all the respect. The interesting, let me try to emphasize or give an emphasis to the contrast that you're pointing out because I think it's real. There is about the um, Pequod voyage, that quest, a Puritan aspect. And Melville's really, that's a Protestant Puritan dominating nature because it's, remember in, in Melville you're dealing with an, a malice. There's a malice in nature. So that automatically puts everybody in an adversarial position. I think what you're describing is accurate. I mean, it's, I'm, we're in perfect agreement on that. But, and it's a good contrast because Melville's looking to an aspect of Christianity failing. Hemingway's not dealing with that kind. He's in a, in a Darwinian world, but he's bringing something more human to it in all, in all the words that you used. Let's go to the text. Um, I've got Bob watching me. <laughs> Come on. I'm going to go through the text just... Um, reading some passages to get us into the text. Okay. Remember on page 40 he snags the marlin. He's lost sight of land, he says on page 46, he's beyond all people now joined together since noon. That which he was born for, he's doing. Um, on Page 50, he says, um, this is page 50 in my book, sorry, it's just page 50. His choice had been to stay in the deep water far out beyond all snares and traps and treachery. He's gone out beyond a point that he's gone out before. He knew that from the beginning, he's doing it. My choice was to go there, to find him beyond all people, beyond all people in the world. By the way, I want to, I, I want to come to this question, what does far out mean? And I want it to be twofold. On a, on a literal level, it has to do with fishing. On the level of artistry, of poetry, what is it? If we can see an analogy between fishing and poetry, and I think it's there, what does it mean to be far out, beyond all people, beyond all people in the world? Now we are joined together and have since noon, and no one to help either one of us. He says, this is the thing I was born for. And he says at this point, he's married. Um, 
on page 58. His hands are giving in, he says on 58. <laughs> what kind of a hand is that, he said. Cramp then if you want. Make yourself into a clot. will do you no good. <laughs> He's scolding his body. <laughs> God. Um, come on, he thought, and looked down into the dark water at the slant of the line. Eat it now, and it will strengthen the hand. It's not the hand's fault, and you've been many hours with the fish, but you can stay with him for, eat the bonito now. Go down a few lines. How do you feel now, hand? He asked the ham cramp that was almost as stiff as rigor mortis. I'll eat some more fish for you. And then a few lines. How does it go now, hand? <laughs> or is it too early to know? He's got to have somebody to talk to. Um... Um, down a few lines on 59. I wish I could feed the fish, he thought. He is my brother, but I must kill him and keep strong to do it. He loves him. He's a brother. He's going to kill him. Um, page 66. I'm going to go through this quickly because I want to get to the end. Um, um, he's having s such a struggle. It's such an ordeal for him. And I'm hoping everybody's relating this to your own lives when you have moments like this in your own lives. And um, what's the, the tiller? You'd like to take the tiller? He takes that when he needs that to steer the boat. Remember, to, to, when you'd like to take your tiller and crack it over your husband's head or your wife's head one day, just, just remember this. Okay. Um, He's exhausted from the struggle. He was comfortable but suffering, although he did not admit the suffering at all. I am not religious, he said, but I will say ten our, ten our fathers and ten Hail Marys that I should catch this fish. And I promise to make a pilgrimage to the Virgin of Cobra if I catch him. That's a promise. God, do this for me and I'll do this for you. By the way, I'm, I'm sort of mocking it. Don't ever forget that passage in the Old Testament where Abraham is bargaining with God. And Jacob does it constantly. Um, what if there are 20 people? What if there are 10? What if there are five? <laughs> Go down a few. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. He said a prayer. Then he had, Blessed Virgin, pray for the death of this fish. <laughs> Wonderful though. <laughs> Wonderful though he is. <laughs> Go down. I had better abate that little line over the stern, he said. If the fish decides to stay in the night, I will need to eat again. Um, go down, 66. Although it's unjust, he thought, because he's going to kill him. And he says, in his great glory, but I will show him what a man can do and a man endures. This goes to Mary and Alexis's point. Now is when I must prove it. The thousand times that he had proved it meant nothing. Now he was proving it again. Each time was a new time, and he never thought about the past when he was doing it. I wish he'd sleep, and I could sleep and dream about the lions. He thought, why are the lions the main thing that is left? Remember that. The one thing that's left as everything goes is that image of the lions, and I think that's peace. That's the king of the beast. So, so whatever in him is a battler, and I think he is a warrior. He's a battler. He's a fighter. He admits it. But at the depth of his soul, what this man longs for is peace. He says, he and the fish are alike. 
The fish is battling him. He's battling the fish. On page 81, or 75, the fish is my friend too, he said. I have never seen of Hernus such a fish, but I must kill him. I am glad we do not, uh, we don't have to try to kill the stars. This is that period in which he has this meditation on um, life generally. He says, we kill each other. We kill fish, kiss, fill, you know, fish kill. We cannot kill the stars. He says he doesn't understand that, but I think it's Hemingway's way of showing there's an order greater than this predatory life on earth, so that even if people on earth prey on each other, there's an order, an existential order, in which that's not true. You can't kill the stars, you can't kill the moon or the sun. Then he was very sorry for the great fish that had nothing to eat, and his determination to kill him never relaxed in his sorrow for him. How many people will he feed, he thought, but, they are, but, they are, but are they worthy to eat him? No, of course not. There was no one worthy of eating him from the manner of his behavior and his great dignity. The fight that this fish is putting on puts him... So what's happening to Santiago now that's not happened before? On page 81, he's trying to get some sleep. Remember, he catches dolphin with his other lines and feeds himself. Um, on 81, my right hand can hold it as long as he is braced. He thought, if it relaxes in sleep, my left hand will wake me as the line goes out. It's hard on the right hand, but he's, <laughs> he's used to punishment. Even if I sleep 20 minutes or half an hour, it's good. He lay forward, cramping himself against the line with all of his body, putting all his weight onto his right hand, and he was asleep. He did not dream of the lines, but instead of a vast school of porpoises, that stretched for eight or ten miles and it was the time of their mating and they would leap high into the air and return into the same hole that they'd made. That is, there's a perfection in their athleticism that animals exhibit when they do these things. Then he dreamed that he was in the village on his bed and there was a northern, he was very cold and his right arm was asleep because he had, his head had rested on it instead of the pillow. After that he began to dream of the long yellow beach, the long yellow beach and he saw the first of the lions come down onto it in the early dark. And then the other lions came and he rested his chin in the wood of the bows where the ship lay anchored with the evening offshore breeze. And he waited to see if there would be more lions and he was happy. Um, then the shark attack comes. <coughs> um, and you know that it goes on in ways. <coughs> And each time they come, he, he fights them off with the, um, um, the harpoon first. He loses it because it sticks in the first one. He, he attaches a knife to a broken oar and uses it. That gets broken and lost. He has to um, use a broken oar, then he even uses the tiller. And remember, that's the thing by which he steers. So whatever this going out far, and Frost poem, I have only one aim in mind, to take you where you'll be lost, to get you lost. It's to get us away from the conventions because it's by those things that we can too easily die. We just settle into that life and stop growing. So um, he loses all of his weapons 
And then on page, um, I'm just going to go, um, remember at one point he, he says to the fish, kill me or I'll kill you. One of us, you know, is going to die. Um, um, yeah, on page 92, fish, the old man said, fish, you're going to have to die anyway. Do you have to kill me too? That way, was nothing, that way nothing is accomplished, he thought. His mouth was too dry to speak, but he could not reach for the water now. I must get him alongside this time, he thought. I'm not good for many more turns. Yes, you are, he told himself. You're good forever. So just at that moment when he thinks he's got nothing more. By the way, this is um, Hopkins' poem, No, Nothing More. That every time he says no to God, there's always something more. On the next term, he nearly had him. But again, the fish righted itself and he swam away. Because you know, he's starting the circle and that's a sign to Santiago that the fish is tiring and the circle's narrow. They get close, and he pulls the line in. On the next turn, he nearly had him. But again, the, right, the fish righted itself and swam slowly away. You are killing me, fish. So this is Alexei. He's talking to him man to man. <laughs> You're killing me, fish. He nearly had him. The old man thought, but you have a right to. Never have I seen a greater or more beautiful or a calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills here. What do we say about it? Remember this when we, when we come to this question. What do we say about Santiago? Now you're getting confused in the head, he thought. You must keep your head clear. Keep your head clear and know how to suffer like a man or fish, he thought. Clear up head, he said of the voice he could hear. I'm reading this like it's got a comic spirit. But, and I know you, I'm sure that when you're reading it, you're not hearing anything comic. I'm probably not doing the best of job here, but it's, it's, there's a comic element. In, um, so his hands are becoming mushy. The fish is becoming, um, getting closer. Um, and he gets close on page 90. Seven, I think he makes a mistake. He starts computing the worth of the fish in cents. It was the only way to kill him, the old man said. He was feeling better since the water and he knew he would not go away and his head was clear. He's over 1,500 pounds the way he is, he thought, maybe much more. If he dresses out two-thirds, at least 30 cents a pound. Because he's brought him on, he's seen that it's bigger than the skiff. Um, he'd never seen one like that. I need a pencil for that, he said. My head's not that clear, but I think the great Dimaggio would be proud of me today. I had no bone spurs. It's then when he starts to turn the ship um, southwest. So he's been going northeast out in the ocean. He's turning. And um, it's shortly after that um, um, that... On, it's on page 100 in my book. Um, it was an hour before the first shark hit him. The shark was not an accident. The blood's coming up, and it's from that point through the end that there's a real battle um, with the sharks. On page 19, he names them differently. He says to this other set, Galanos. I don't know Spanish, but my, my impression is in Galanos, it's, it's a reference to something that's very attractive, but it's full of content. It's like looking at a, um, a man who is wealthy, who is full of scorn, or a beautiful woman who is beauty, beautiful to behold, 
but underneath she just is nothing but a shark. Um, by the way, I don't know if it's ever struck you. You know there's that TV program called The Sharks with those, I think, four men or three men and one woman who made, and they're, they're called The Sharks. Galanos, come on, Galanos, he says on page 109. Go on, Galanos, slide down a mile deeper. Go to your friend, or maybe it's your mother. <laughs> um, 110. They must have taken a quarter of him and the best meat, he said aloud. I wish it were a dream and that I'd never hooked him. I'm sorry about it, fish. It makes everything wrong. He stopped and he did not want to look at the fish now, drained of blood and awash. He looked the color of silver backing of a mirror and the stripes still showed. I shouldn't have gone out so far, fish, he said. Neither for you nor for me. I'm sorry, fish. And he wishes that he'd brought another knife. He didn't, so he's regretting. He prides himself on his preparations. And all the way through this, he's chastising himself because he keeps realizing that there's more that he could have done to prepare. Um, he, um, on One twenty-one. I cannot be too far out now, he thought. I hope no one has been too worried. Remember, he went to sleep thinking it was all done, and another pack came and finished the skin. I mean, they just took everything off. So that when he goes, when he's closer to shore at this point, there's nothing left but skeleton. I cannot be too far out now, he thought. I hope no one has been too worried. There's only the boy to worry, of course, but I'm sure he would have, conf he would have confidence. Many of the older farmers will worry. Many others, too, he thought. I live in a good town. Go down, half fish, he said. Fish that you were. I am sorry that I went too far out. He repeats that um, a number of times. Um, 116, as he's coming in, um, he lay in the stern and steered and watched for the glow to come in the sky. I have half of him, he thought. Maybe I'll have luck to bring the forward half in. I should have some luck. No, he said. You violated your luck when you went too far. As a matter of fact, that's what's going to happen. Um, the last group will come in and finish it, and then he will say, again, I went too far out. I want to go to the end very quickly, because I want to get to my question. Um, the last thing he says as he's entering port, so he's been returning you know, from this far out, the last thing he says, he's approaching, bed will be a great thing. These are your thoughts. It's a, it is easy when you are beaten, he thought. I never knew how easy it was. And what beat you, he thought. These are his last spoken words. Nothing he said aloud. I went out too far. And you know that at that point he takes the mast out. He goes up, he falls. And then he has to stop five times to rest because of the mast. So we're getting, I think, an allusion to the stations of the cross. Finally, he put the mask down, stood up, he picked up the mask, put it on his shoulder, and started up the road. He had to sit down five times before he reached the shack. He lies down with his head, hands stretched out. It's a Christ figure with his palms open. He was asleep when the boy looked in the door the morning. It was blowing so hard that the drifting boats would um, not be going out, and the boy had slept late and then come into the old man's shack as he had done each morning. The boy saw the old man was breathing, and then he saw the old man's hands Remember, one hand is turned to mush. It's just, imagine that. 
the old man's hand and he started to cry. He went out very quietly to go to bring some coffee and all the way down the road he was crying. He goes, they, the, the man expresses his sorrow and compliments him on page 123, it's a couple of pages from the end. What a fish it was, the proprietor said, there has never been such a fish. Those were two fine fish you took yesterday too. Damn my fish, the boy said, and he started to cry again. The man says, tell him how sorry I am. The boy thanked him and he goes home. The old man wakes up, this is at the very end, the last couple of pages, and he talks. Did they search for me? Of course, with Coast Guard and with planes. The ocean's very big and a skiff is small and hard to see, the old man said. He noticed how pleasant it was to have someone to talk to instead of speaking only to himself and to the sea. I missed you, he said. What did you catch? When the first day he goes on and the boy says, they will make a point to make better instruments because he's doing everything he can to not let the man dis get discouraged, to let him know he's always prepared, already preparing to take care of what they lost and be better prepared the next time. I will have everything in order, the boy said. You get your hands well, old man. I know how to care for them. In the night I spat something strange and felt something in my chest was broken. Get that well too, the boy said. Lie down, old man, and I will bring you your clean shirt and something to eat. He goes to get it on the way. As the boy went out the door and down the worn coral road, he was crying again. That afternoon, there was a party of tourists at the terrace and looking down in the water among the empty beer cans and dead barracudas. A woman saw a great long white spine with a huge tail at the end that lifted and swung with a tide while the east wind blew a heavy steady sea outside the entrance to the harbor. What's that, she asked a waiter and pointed to the long backbone of the great fish that was now garbage waiting to go. Remember, the boy wanted the blade, the sword. Um, so she asked, what is that? Tiburon, the waiter said, is shark. He was meaning to explain what had happened. I didn't know sharks had such handsome, beautifully formed tails. I didn't either, her male companion said. Up the road in his shack, the old man was sleeping again. He was still sleeping on his face and the boy was sitting by him watching him. The old man was dreaming about the lions. Okay, big question. And I'm going to put it with another question, but I want to hold off on the second question, okay? I want to, I want to see what your response is the first. What does far out mean? In terms of psychologically, literally, we know what it means. He went way beyond limits, far beyond anything he'd done before and beyond anything the other villagers had done. What does that mean, uh, metaphorically, in terms of the actual voyage and in terms of poetry? Remember, nobody's ever done this before. It was a fish greater than anybody's seen. So if you can keep both of those things alive, um, but let's concentrate on the first. The, what does far out mean? Leave aside the analogy of poetry. The second question I want to ask as a follow-up, but I don't want to get to it until we do look at this. What would have happened if he'd come back with a fish intact? With no shark attacks, and none of this had happened. He caught this enormous marlin and brought it back. And I want to leave that as bare as I can. Because this story in one sense is about defeat. He lost everything. So it seems it's a despairing story. What does far out mean 
I want to I want to take some time with that, but I want to turn it around too and say, what if he'd come back and the Marlin had not been attacked and was fully present? And I don't want to elaborate on I don't want to embellish it. How would that have changed the meaning? But let's take the first. What does fire out mean? I think it means when you lost all control. Um, his, what, what he wanted to do was fish, you know, get this fish so he can sell the meat. You know, and, and, you know, and once you, you know, I think far out is when you, 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 you lost the control. You, you got the fish, but then you're not going to be able to sell anything, you, you know. And, and you have all these attacks and you have to improvise with the tools that you have in order to control the, but, but the regular control that you would have had in a normal situation is totally out. I think it's somewhere where you've never been before, beyond your limit or your desire, for sure. And you maybe have to improvise or in order to battle it. But you know that you have to. You have to handle this somehow, the best you can. You have to really stretch your ability. Yeah. Surrender everything you know. Surrender. Sorry? Surrender. Although, Surrendering yeah, yeah. Everything that I think it's when your free will and your choices put you in danger. Say it again. Your free will and your choices put you in danger. Put you in danger? Yeah. yeah. Or in a place you've never known before and it just... Unlike some of the other characters in the short stories that we read, he doesn't despair. He, he seems to keep positive throughout this ordeal. And he doesn't try to put blame or uh, other than on himself. Yeah. He takes total responsibility. Yeah. 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 What does he learn about himself, Anne? If, if this story is partly about self-knowledge of coming to see something in yourself that you didn't see before, when you didn't go far out and you didn't exceed your limits or you know, you're fully within your limits and you think you understand yourself and you think you understand the world and, but you go far out. What does he learn in terms of, what, what kind of self-knowledge does he come to? What does he learn about himself that he didn't, or does he come to some self-knowledge that he didn't have before? Can you put a name on that? More to it. The natural forces that are just more more than natural forces, or no, that the natural forces are going to. You don't think things are such a level beyond what he thought he might even be able to do? There are other factors, like but still natural. Yeah. Because in a Darwinian world, there would be nothing but natural forces, and it would be predatory or evolution or whatever you're going to say. Is there, is Santiago's understanding of himself limited by things in nature or is there something transcendent to the human soul? Is there something in him that 
comes into play when he finds that the natural things that he so relied on aren't enough. Is that clear? Yeah. Perseverance and the virtue of hope. You can't do it alone. It's hope. It's like it, it, it's just we just keep going. You keep going. <laughs> and and you know, don't, you know, we don't give up. Yeah. But I don't. I don't think he just keeps going. It's like anything else. You're encouraged to maybe go do this here. His thought was to go out and catch this fish that he really needed to get. He had no intentions of going that far out. But he, he said in the beginning, Bob, he said, I'm going far out. But the fish took you. Well, yeah, but he wasn't going to go that far out. Right. So, but the fish encouraged him. Pulled, <laughs> pulled, pulled him. Pulled him <laughs> he pulled him beyond his means. Right. He had to reach within yes. to find out how to handle it. Yeah. So we go through that all the time in life. Someone... Who, even me being here. Why am I here? Why, what brought me here? Yeah, you have to deal with this shark sitting here. <laughs> so I, went, I went out on a limb to even, even I'm understanding you fine, Robert. <laughs> but, that, but that's what I think it is, that, that the fish pulled him out beyond what he was going to do. Yeah. So he had to find a way to survive beyond that. And then when he realized it was the fish that helped him do this, he then became real buddies with the fish and said, well, okay, I'll come on, I'll take you, take you back. But then he felt really bad because the fish started getting up and he was... Yeah, let me, ask, let me ask this a different way. My question, the follow-up to Karen was, when he's pulled beyond limits he's had to deal with before, um, and he's had to call on himself and do things that he's not done before, my question was, is, is what he calls on in the natural world, the defining world of Hemingway's time, it's a Darwinian predatory, is what he calls on sufficient, or my question was, is there something transcendent above that that he calls on? But let me finish it. So that was my question. To put this in perspective, let me put it this way. When he comes back, he has nothing. Nothing. So the question we're forced to ask at that point is if he set out to do what we do every day, we get fish, we go to the market, we eat food, we struggle with each other, we, we sometimes have to suffer ourselves, our, ourselves and others. Um, so he has to call, my question was, are natural resources enough for him at that point, having gone far out? Or is that something transcendent? And I want to put that in this context. When he comes back, he has nothing. So how are we to understand that? Is that a defeat? Is it to show that our natural resources are not enough? Or are we to understand that ending differently? Because he, he started out as a, I can't remember the Spanish word for cursed. It's gone 84 days, yeah. 40, 84 days, I think, and the 85th will be a start without a fish. So they're starting to treat him like a leper. He comes back with nothing except a skeleton. So my question is, has he, something been given to him? Are we readers, to, do we learn something about him? And is the, are the natural resources enough for him to draw on? Or is there something more? And how do we understand the fact that he comes back with? Defeated by these sharks. But he's defeated by the sharks. But he's 
Right. And he has evidence of it. Yes. The sharks ate it. So the people in town are kind of being accepted. And they have kind of caught a huge fish. Mm -hmm. Huge. Yeah, yeah. Bigger than anything they've ever seen before, yeah. And even even as you said, the the, the waiter was going to explain about the tiburon, about the about the sharks eating the fish, and she was going to explain what happened. But they didn't let them. They said, "Oh, the, oh, the sharks." But that's not what what she was going to say. You know, she was going to explain what had happened. So people understood what happened. You know, I think that people knew. The fishermen did, yeah. Yeah, right. the fishermen right. in the town knew what happened. So he wasn't totally defeated, I don't think. Lexi, you were going to say something. Yes, I mean, I think this is a victory for sure. A victory of the human spirit. How? He said he's a warrior. How? And what he does is he he wages war against himself. Um, he pushes past pain, limits, physical exhaustion, all sorts of things. Um, if you look at that episode of the arm wrestling, the 24-hour <laughs> arm wrestling, that is very illustrative of his character throughout life. That was when he was young. He will not And strong. <laughs> I mean, right. blood was coming out from their fingernails. Yeah. He will, this man refuses to give up. To give up because, too, I, I don't know, I think it's not, he seems very humble. It's, it's his own estimation of himself. Rather than looking good to others, it's more like... But he, but he went... Character. But he also, I think he went inside himself or spiritually. He reached out Strength for help. of character. Uh, by saying, Hail Marys and the Archons. <laughs> he, he reached out for help because he realized he's out there by himself. Yeah. So that inner perspective gave him additional strength to go on. I want, if I. How, yeah, how deeply serious is it, at least for me, a question. But here, let me, let me, let me if I can, relate this to Christ for a second. Um, and it goes to my second question. I don't know if anybody wants to take it up right now. I, I'm going to answer it myself because I've got to be careful of time right now. I think if he'd come back with that fish, his pride would have been inflated. He would have said, I'm not cursed, look at you. Everybody, everybody would have left in their stereotypes, but they would have looked up to this guy because he'd done something they hadn't. He says in the middle of that battle, why did I do this? For food? To, to eat? For pride. He raises, I'm serious about this now, he raises that question because one of the questions I have about this because he's defeated. So in conventional terms, he's lost everything that everybody uses to value as a measurement of their life. They go out and measure it, first thing. Remember where we started with this, I've said this hundreds of times. In the Iliad, it's not until Achilles loses everything that he finally comes because so long as he measures things in terms of booty, wealth, women, women trophy, trophy prizes, a man who has, a woman whose husband is a trophy to her because he's got wealth and good looks. Those are the conventional standards by which men and women marry. Often. This guy comes back with nothing. And one of the questions he asks himself in these meditations is, pride? What if he'd come back with a full fish? This guy is humbled beyond description. Everything that he's ever fought for, every, everything that kept him fighting while he was there in the battle, is gone. 
It's as close to Christ as you can get on a cross. Everything's gone. So the real question, is everybody following? Everything is gone. So everything that defined his life, getting fish, putting away the curse, letting everybody know they're wrong, um, he goes far out. What does that mean? When you lose everything, how can it be a victory? In what sense was Christ's death on the cross, and in what way is it condemning of us that we continue to live as if the meaning of our life is going to be wealth, comfort, security? He gives up, every one of those things is lost. His body is beaten up, his hands are mush. He has nothing to show, no food, no money. He can't, he can't value it in terms of sense. All of his terms of valuation are gone. So hold on. My question is, what does far out mean? What has he come to as a man? I'm going to say he's changed. I mean, it sounds to me like most. In what way has he changed? How is he different? He's going to die, I think. How has he changed? How do we look at him? Sorry? Prodigal son? And does everything Funny. wrong. And then he comes home and he has it all. So he came home. I, I mean, that's how I see it. He came back home and he had it all. He had the boy. He had the. No, but so the, you know, the father and prodigal son gave him a banquet. He's got food. He's got comfort. Well, San Diego is. He had a big fish. He had the big fish. He had a, that was the. I mean, I don't know. That's, I, I was just. He had the proof of catching Yeah, he had the proof. What's the value of having nothing? What does it teach us? It ends by, I mean, it ends with the dream of the lions always, again. It's just, they always say sleep is, is, is the brother of death. And so he's dreaming of the lion, which is an inference, I believe, that he's going to die from the internal bleeding. But he's a, he, was, he has the skeleton, so he did what everyone in the world thought he had to do, even though it was just a skeleton. And now life ends, and he's ready to dream of lions and gulls. If every one of us in this room suddenly reached a point where we had everything taken away, absolutely everything, what would be our response? How would we deal with it? Who would we be if we identify ourselves with all those things? Yeah, my, my question is, because Alexa used the word, and I'm, but I'm not still clear. If this is a victory, because in the world's terms, if everybody will accept this, in the world's terms, victory would have meant money, Prestige, accomplishment. I did all this. It's what he did with the Negro. Beat him. I did all this. He can't boast of any of that. If it's a victory, how is it a victory? In what sense do we see this as not a... Remember, it started with a flag of defeat. It described the flag of defeat. He says in there, man was not meant to be defeated. Christ was crucified. God was crucified. Everybody, whoa, you know, have this fish. 
okay, because kind of anybody could have caught up the fish if he went out party. But he came home only with the skeleton. So they knew what that meant. He had to fight for his life that entire time. By himself. Yeah, by himself. So the skeleton on the boat spoke volumes because Santiago could have cut the ropes and let the fish go away. Yes, yes. And then he wouldn't have been bothered with the shark. Yes, yeah. But he didn't do that. Yeah. Let me stop here. If we can, because it's late and I'm, if we can call that a victory like Christ, and I'm glad for your calling us back there, Mary. Um, if, if he came back with everything, everybody said, oh, you know, great. He had proof. If the crucifixion were taken away and the rising of the dead, what ground would there be for believing in Christ? I, I don't want to go there, but just to hold on to that. Um, how important was it that he lose everything for this to be a complete victory? Because if it's a victory, it can't be any longer in the world's terms, oh, look at what you've got or the money that you'll bring. Or So the question, the paradox I think the story is leaving us with is what, what truth is there in saying some, two things. One, that man only comes to wisdom through suffering. He only comes to learn about himself through suffering when all the things he thinks he knows or has control over, that he only comes to himself through suffering, and that he only somehow comes to himself when he loses everything. When you lose something, um, you come to yourself more fully than if you had all those things. Explain the paradoxes of those. It seems to me those are the paradoxes at the center of the... Turn, go ahead, Cheryl. I keep thinking of the book of Job the whole time. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And it's interesting that he, he really doesn't fully come to that until God says to him, Who do you think you are? Were you I mean, it's when he sort of verbally beats him up and says, Who do you think you are? Were you there when you know? Because he he wasn't gonna stop moaning, you know, until God said, knock it off. Sorry, go ahead. Something that I just thought of if uh, you know, I mean the the um, people were looking for him. Even they, they even saw sent airplanes. You know, I think the people saw that he was dead. Right. Just just the fact that he came back and with the skeleton, it, it was. I think that was a surprise for everyone. You know. Yeah. He 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 defeated. Uh, you know what everybody thought. Last question in two minutes because we've got to go. If you if you use the analogy of a book. And he did what nobody else has done, if I could go back to those words that end the story. Wherever, no man has ever done this before. You went out farther. No people knows this. I can't remember the words. Remember, where you go, go on beyond what other people have seen or what other people know. If you see this in terms of an analogy, and the underlying analogy is poetry, that Everything about the on the literal level refers to a poet, what a poet does. What does going out for a poet mean when what he's doing is going to be beyond what people knew or understood? 
Um, is that clear enough? How does... Transcending. Huh? Transcending. Go to a higher level. If you just read a poem about something you've heard a million times before in the same way and it left you where you were before, would you value that poem? But if we've been reading, let's say, the poems we've read, directive, a house that's no longer a house, a town, far, what, is the, what in the world does that mean? Um, if you have any business, come to me and I'll take you. My only purpose is in getting you lost. Frost never wrote anything like that before. I think it's a stunning poem. How much does this story, by analogy, refer to poetry and what a poet does in going beyond the limits defined by other people in order to see truths about yourself that you wouldn't if you didn't go, even though it leaves you regretting because the cost of it, what it did to you, what it did to your relationships, the cost of that. How many of the women would have stayed with the disciples when Christ said, come with me? I'm not kidding. How, with what ease could the wives have heard the husband saying, I'm following God? That is, going beyond their conventional Jewish life with their belief in God. When somebody goes far out, and um, what's the cost of that and that person, his own understanding of self, his own understanding, and what's going to be the cost of his relationship with other people? When you're doing something nobody's understood, they don't know it. Those were, my, those were the words I'm reading them. If the analogy is, here's poetry, what does that tell us about poetry? Hemingway got the Nobel Prize right after he wrote this. Would he have gotten it without it? I don't, it's hard to know, but did he go far out? Did he do something in this story he'd never done before? And does it put readers in a position that they've never been in before. That they have to look at their lives to ask what does far out mean? What's the, in terms of self-knowledge, what does that mean for me? And what does it mean for those whom I love or with whom I have ties? Does it imply that self-knowledge is not possible if you're under control? Say again, if you're what? If, if like, so you said, far out means you don't have any control anymore. He didn't when the fish took him. Except he keeps exercising control to fight him. He's using all of his... He does everything he can, but he can't do everything. The sharks win. Right. Um, so my question is, can you, is Hemingway say, saying that you can't come to self-knowledge if... If you don't give up all control, if you don't, you have to keep trying, but you have to recognize at some point that you're not in control. Um, is that what he's saying? Does anybody want to tackle that? I just think that suffering brings a depth. I think we all have self-knowledge to some extent, but life, age, suffering, Situations bring depth because your character shows through. And so I, I think uh, self-knowledge is a continuous learning thing, probably even beyond depth. The, the, my answer to the question, Doc, if I can, 
I don't ever see, to put it in those terms, complete surrender of self-control, it's, it's hard for me to see in the action that that's a faithful description of what's going on. Because during the entire fight, he's fighting the Marlin to bring the Marlin on side. So even though he's gone out beyond and it's asking things of him he's never had to do before, he's always trying to draw. It goes to Karen's quit. That's why I asked it. Is, is drawing on natural resources enough? And I don't think it is. But he, he draws, so he keeps saying, I didn't have this. He did. So he has to make do. He has to suffer more. He has to use his hand. And he has to do everything that's going to bring his suffering to a greater point. Um, but even when the sharks come, he uses the harpoon, he makes a makeshift knife, he takes the tiller, he gives up that control. So he never, he never stops battling and at night when there's nothing he can do and he tries to go to sleep when the last pack hits to finish it, but he's fought until there's nothing he can do in the way of fighting. Um, so it, see, I mean, it, for me, it's, I mean, what I thought Mary was saying was that if you look at it, there's a, a gradual learning that, and it gets deeper and deeper and deeper in the direction, finally, of being helpless against something that you can't stop, like the sharks. Um, because that's what he ends up with. It's a skeleton. Um, and he did everything he could not to let that. That's why my question went, what happens when you have nothing? When you lose, every, with Christ on the cross, when we may, we're back in the Iliad, when we measure our lives in terms of booty or wealth or pleasure or reputation, um, what people think of us, our accomplishments, remember, because you could have, if you had it, that's why I asked the question, what if you had it going home? Well, look at these accomplishments, everybody would said, oh, what a great, you know, what were, what were Aristotle and Boethius's four earthly goods, the natural goods that present such temptations to us? What were they? Power, wealth, fame, fame pleasure. pleasure. Those are the things that define us. When every one of those is taken away, what do we have? Because every one of those is taken away. Um, so it seems to me if there's a victory, because I believe I really believe this book is is a radical change. It's a victory in not letting the world define you. That there's something inherently transcendent above the world so that even if everything is taken away as it was for Christ there is a dignity to the human being beyond what the world can give it and the greatness of this story rests in that that's the victory not any victory in the world's terms because every one of those things is taken Yeah, yes. If you didn't have anyone to share it, good or bad. What they would lose without it. That's a really good, because that sense that the victory, there, even if they don't see it in those terms, it's in them. They've seen it. They carry that. The boy carries it intimately, personally. But everybody there, even if they don't think in the terms in which we're talking about it right now, have that experience. They know it. It's there. It's like somebody knowing about Christ, even if they don't enter into a cross, it touches them. There's something there. The victory here is 
in not letting the loss of everything define him. That there is an affirmation of a transcendent aspect of the soul, and it's that that makes this, I think, Hemingway's greatest work. Chuck, it's good to see you. Thank you. No, I know. Yeah, she told. I'm, anyway, it's good to see you. Always good to see you. Um, I'll send a short thing on Billy Bud. Read it, please. And we'll, we'll spend Billy Bud, and then we have a couple weeks off. And um, I don't know how you're going to respond to this, Chuck, but we're doing Jane Austen. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Is it? These things grow. They do. Yeah, yeah. I take a minute before you go because I have a word with you. Can you? Yes, sir. I have to. I don't get up. God. Sorry. It's just getting worse and worse, worse and worse. I just. I. Thank you. Sorry. I'm making a mess here. No, you're not making a mess. Well, I did this. Yeah. Hold on for one second. Got it.